The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. We'll take your Bibles again, please, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. There is a purple note sheet, lavender note sheet in your uh, bulletins there. You can follow along with that if you'd like. Let's read together Acts chapter 6 and verses 1 through 7. And the Word of God says, Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. Then they set them before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase in the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Last week we began to, to consider together what it is and what we want to achieve as a church. We said we want to be a church that pleases the Lord. How do we glorify God? When we glorify Him, we make His name great by striving to please Him in everything that we do, by obedience to Him, and that obedience, that striving to please him, displays love for God and love for our church as well. We saw from Acts chapter 5, verses 42 to 61, that, or 6 and verse 1, sorry, that a Christ-pleasing church is a rejoicing through suffering church. Suffering for Christ pleases the Lord. A ceaselessly evangelizing church pleases the Lord. After they gotten beaten and they were kicked out of the council, the Bible says every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. A ceaselessly evangelizing church pleases the Lord. And we looked and we began to look at a loving church and how a loving church pleases the Lord. Now the church is the body of Christ, and in many ways, it's like a human body. The body is a complex, integrated web of systems and parts and pieces. Its various systems work to sustain and care for the body. The skeletal system provides rigidity, structure, and protection. The nervous system communicates pain and movement and information, both voluntarily and involuntarily, to and from the head and the brain to the body. The blood circulatory system transports oxygen-rich blood to brain and muscles and nutrients to tissues. The blood system protects against excessive bleeding by forming clots in the body. The food processing and waste management systems function to fuel the body with necessary nutrients and rid the body of waste toxins. The whole body and all its systems are under the leadership and guidance of the brain and of the mind. When the body is infected by viruses or diseases, it works to fight infection with its own immune system. When it senses danger, it injects adrenaline, raises the blood pressure and the heart rate to respond with fight or flight. The body is designed, created by God to feed itself, to protect itself, to sustain itself and to function. And when there are needs and deficiencies within the body, the brain responds by calling in the appropriate systems and resources to supply the need and restore whatever is lacking 
or necessary. The brain and the body respond by acting for its own good and to please the brain that directs it. And you can see the analogy almost immediately, can't you? Well, that action of the body and the brain to act for its own good and please the brain, well, that's what love is. The love of God described in Scripture is a sacrificial love. It works to supply the needs of the individual believer and the church. God loved us sacrificially. The Bible says, as you well know, for God so loved the world that he sacrificially gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a sacrificial love that was displayed. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God supplied our greatest need and in Christ we have rescue from God's wrath against us because of our sin. We have God's forgiveness from him for our sin and rebellion against God. We have cleansing from sin's defilements through Christ's blood. We have our Lord Jesus Christ gave us a new commandment in John 13 verses 34 and 35 to love one another just as he, Christ, has loved us. The church that loves as Christ loves pleases the Lord. Now in Acts 6, 1-7, we can see a church described which loved as Christ loved. And they did it this way. They recognized the needs in the body. Just like my human body recognizes when I have an infection and begins to send all those little guys in there running around to fight the infection in my body, so... The body of Christ recognizes the needs, the deficiencies, the problems within the body. Secondly, the church which loves as Christ loved recognizes the necessary spiritual priorities in dealing with needs in the body. We're going to see that in a bit of detail. Thirdly, the church that loves as Christ loved recognizes necessary godliness or ministry. And all of those things are an expression and display of God's love as we work to deal with needs and problems in the body. Well, let's look at them together. First of all, a loving church recognizes needs in the body. I want you to notice Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. I want you to notice and remember from other verses in Acts that it is God alone who saves souls and adds disciples to the church. God added daily such as should be saved. And just as a physical body experiences needs and difficulties as it experiences growth, so does the body of Christ. One of our, uh, our boys, as he was growing, would go through terrible growth pains. And we go into his room at night and he would just say, my legs hurt. And he'd be crying and crying because his body had these growth pains. Well, as the body of Christ in Jerusalem is beginning to go, as God is adding disciples and adding numbers to the church, there's some difficulties. And God's blessing of growth brought needs and opportunities disguised as difficulties. Those needs would allow the apostolic leadership and the whole number of the disciples as the church to display both love for Christ and love for each other in resolving those difficulties. Notice also the Hellenists complain against the Hebrews. Now, for whatever reason, it's not mentioned, we're not told how, the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. From Acts chapter 4, verse 35, we can see that the money was brought and it was laid at the apostles' feet and it would be taken from there and distributed or ministered or served to anyone as he had need. How it is the Hellenist widows, that's the Greek-speaking Jews, were being overlooked, we're simply not told. And I read, I looked at a couple of commentaries, I didn't actually read them, they were pages and pages of research on what it is about the Hellenists and the Hebrews and why there was this great contention dispute. And I thought to myself, yeah, I think the answer is a whole lot simpler than that. 
just being a dumb chippy, my simple conclusion is that God allowed the need and the complaint to give opportunity for a practical love to be displayed in that church. Notice the 12 apostles initiated their response. It tells us in verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. The 12 became aware of the need. However, the 12 were made aware, were not told, but what they did do was they didn't simply sweep the whole problem underneath the camel blanket. They did something about it. They summoned the church together. The 12 were not blind to the needs in the church. A loving church leadership, they were concerned and they responded to that need. A loving leadership recognizes the needs of the church and a loving church is willing to step up and take on responsibility as led and assigned by the church leadership. It pleases the Lord immensely when the church recognizes its needs and looks to see how they can fill and meet those needs in love for one another. And as always, I was listening to uh, Dr. Joel Beakey. He's the president of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in the United States. He's written a whole bunch of books on the Puritans. And he was preaching on Christ to a conference. He said, it's amazing as you go through the scriptures, especially the New Testament, and what you find is every problem that comes up, the answer and the solution is always found in Christ. And we look and we can see how Christ is our example for how and what we do to respond. Christ knew our need our great need to be saved, and he was willing to actively, practically meet it. He left his Father's presence in glory. Christ came not to be served, he said, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ served his Father through obediently speaking the word. Christ served his Father. He met the needs through obediently doing all that he was given to do. And we saw last week that included getting up from the table, taking off his outer robe, wrapping himself in a towel, and washing his disciples' feet. Christ served us by meeting not our every want. Thank the Lord that he didn't give us everything we wanted, right? you imagine how terrible it would be if you got everything you wanted? You would be the most spoiled, rotten kid around or older person. But you know what's amazing and wonderful is he provided us with the one thing we could not possibly do without. He gave us himself. Christ served us by meeting not our every want, but providing our greatest need. He rescued us from wrath and he gave us forgiveness of sin. He reconciled us to God and he gave us eternal life. Christ saw the needs of the people and wept for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Christ knew the needs of the hungry, the sick, the weak, and he met their needs according to a set of priorities. We'll see that in a bit. Every church has needs that need to be met. If it didn't have needs, it would be in glory. That's a simple reality. We have needs that need to be met. We may not have widows who are being overlooked in a daily distribution of food, although that's possible, but we do have many needs. Our great need, one great need of this church, Noble Park Baptist Church, is to consider how we are going to hand the baton on to the next generation. We believe Christ may return before I finish this sermon, and it would be a great thing if he did. We believe Christ may return tomorrow. He may come next week, next year, or next 2,000 years from now. He may return. The church may not necessarily end with the current generation. We must think in terms of being faithful and pleasing to the Lord, not only for this generation, but also to set up and prepare for the next generation to take over from us and continue the work long after we've been promoted to glory. Think back to the pastor, five pastors previous to this one. Some of you probably don't even know his name. I'm not sure if there was five back prior to me, but in this church, but all of you can think back in your life and you go back and then how many pastors and elderships and diaconates go back through church history? Hundreds of thousands, if not even millions of elderships and pastors and diaconates, and they're long gone. 
and all of our focus is on this generation and what we're doing right now. But we also need to think about the fact that Christ may not return in our lifetime, and we want to set up and provide a way so that we can pass on the baton of this church to the next generation. We must think in terms of being faithful and pleasing to the Lord for ourselves and the generation that follows. To be specific, for our eldership, there's a need for new generations of godly men who love the Lord Jesus Christ and the church, who desire the joy of working and serving through the ministry of the word and prayer. Young men, I'll let you define what young is. Think about that. There's a need. Wes won't be here forever. He's looking forward to going home for glory, home to glory. I won't be here for Brian won't be here forever. Poovin won't be here. There's a, we're going to pass on. There's a need for a new generation of young men to be trained up in the word, trained up in ministry, to step in and take over those roles. For a diaconate, there's a need for new generations of godly men who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who desire the joy of working and serving through practical and helping ministries. Evangelism. Don't keep looking to the older guys to do it. Because there's a need for new generations of godly men and women, young and old, to work and serve the Lord by sharing the gospel through outreach ministries, whether it's across the street or across the world. There's a need. Bible study ministries. There's a need for new generations of godly men and women, teachers and helpers, to work and serve the Lord in Bible studies and growth groups and home group studies. For our Sunday school, creation, and youth group. Look at all those kids that were sitting here. Youth group, if, if please, Lord, may they stay. May they grow up. May our Sunday school start feeding into a youth group in a year or two or two or three years' time. We're going to need youth workers to come alongside and lead a youth group. We need more Sunday school teachers. Brother Noel has been faithful for many, many years doing what he's doing, but he can't do it forever. We need to have young men, young women coming alongside to step up and take on that need. There's needs in the church. Listen, just like that human body, the blood and the tissues and the bones and the nerves and all those different systems that work and function to keep the body operating, if 90% of the body just said, you know what, I'm just here for the ride, what would happen to that body? It would die. Because it needs men. It needs the parts and pieces to function, to step in and build up and be used and carry out that ministry and eventually step off at the far end. For our music ministry, there's a need for new generations of godly piano players and keyboardists and guitarists and bass players and song leaders and all those other bits of music that we could add in to work and serve the Lord by facilitating the worship of the church. The personal needs. Brothers and sisters, there are men and women in this church that need some practical help. There's a need for a new generation of godly men and women, young people and older people, to watch over their brothers and sisters in Christ to care for them. My role as a pastor, in case you didn't understand this, I'll make it very clear for you. My role as a pastor is not to do everything. My role as a pastor is to preach and teach and pray. Let me rephrase that. My role as a pastor is to pray and preach and pray and teach and pray and do some practical things and to equip the body, all of us, so that we can all be actively involved in ministry. This body is a body. It's not a show that you come and watch and go home. All right. I'll get off that hobby horse. Notice three words I mentioned through all of that. I hope you picked them up. Godly, required. It's work, number two. And it's service, number three. Before ministry and serving comes godliness. And we're going to look at that in point number three. It's work. It's a joyful work of ministry. It's not playing at ministry. It's hard work. Yes, you'll get your hands dirty. Yes, you'll get hurt. Yes, you'll have somebody who won't like the way you did what you did. That happens. But it's a work of ministry, and it's a joyful work when you work to serve the Lord. And listen, 
In case you didn't know this, I don't work for you. The elders don't work for you. The diaconate doesn't work for you guys. They work for the Lord. It just so happens that the sphere of their work happens to be this church. And it's a joyful work when the church gets together and begins to work and do ministry together. Some of the greatest times we've had, right? The, the working bees. Up on the rooftop with George pouring paint stripper all over the, the uh, skylights. And then watching in horror as they started to melt the plastic and then washing it off really quickly before anybody noticed. That was George and I. But he was working alongside in ministry together. Listen, that's what the church is all about. It isn't a show to come and watch. It's a body to be involved in. There is needs for commitment and concern to be here, to be together, to walk together and link arms with each other and pray with each other and cry with each other and laugh with each other. If you come on Wednesday nights, we spend a fair amount of time singing and praying and discussing the scriptures and laughing. Usually at things I say, but that's all right. But, you know, we laugh together, and it's a joyful time, but that's what the body is designed to be. And since I'm off on a bit of a tangent, let me just say this also. If you're here for the show, you're missing out, desperately missing out. The church was not designed, like I said last week, to be a dropping center where you come, pick something, and go away and do your thing, and come and pick something and go away and do your thing. It's a body to be involved in, to be knit together. Paul talks about how the body is like joints and bones and tissues and muscles. They're sewed together, linked together, tied together. We need you as much as you need us. All right, now we'll get off the hobby horse. Point number two, a loving church recognizes necessary spiritual priorities. We display and practice love for Christ and for each other by prioritizing the spiritual needs of the body. Notice in the text, verse 2 and verse 4, he sets the priority in both a positive and a negative. In verse 2, he says, it is not right to give up preaching to serve tables. But in verse 4, he says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Some very key words in those verses. In verse number 4, you notice the word ministry. <clears throat> it's the same word as in verse 1. For the daily distribution, it's the word diakonia. Okay, and it means service or diakonia. What's it sound like? Deacon, right? That's where the word comes from. It means to serve and distribute, to minister. In verse number two, to serve tables, diakonain. It means serving. It's the verb form. In verse number four, to minister the word, diakonia, to serve. It's the same word again. The idea of service is woven all through this paragraph. Elders serve God by spiritual ministry of prayer and preaching the word. Deacons serve God by godly, practical ministry. In verse number two, notice the word for right. It's not right for us to give up and so on. It can also be translated, it's not pleasing. So uh, uh, Peter is saying it's not pleasing or desirable or even acceptable. It's not pleasing to give up preaching to serve tables. Notice also in verse number two, the words to give up. It's also translated in other texts as to abandon, to neglect, or to leave. Just like as in when you get married, you leave your father and mother and you cleave to your wife and you become one flesh. You leave behind. So Peter says, listen, it's not pleasing for us to leave behind the ministry of the word to serve tables. So we can say confidently, it does not please the Lord to abandon or leave behind spiritual ministry to do practical ministry. One has a greater priority than the other. All right? It's not loving to deal with the secondary practical issues before or instead of the primary spiritual issues. Those spiritual issues, they take priority. What point is it 
in spending all of our time and all of our efforts dealing in the practical needs of the church if the person on the receiving end of those practical needs happily, healthily supplied for goes to hell. There is no need. It doesn't make any sense. So Peter's, Peter and the apostles who are speaking here are saying, listen, it's not right, it's not pleasing to the Lord to leave behind the ministry of the word and be running around distributing food everywhere and taking care of all those practical needs and we've left behind all the disciples who need teaching. So there's a clear priority in how they serve. It is loving to strive, first of all, for the hearts of God's people to be right with God, to pray for them, to feed them with the word. And the apostolic church leadership set their priority, their devotion on prayer and the serving of the word. Prioritizing spiritual ministry loves Christ and his people because it seeks to meet their greatest need before their lesser needs. Prioritizing spiritual ministry pleases the Lord. It follows Christ's example. Did he set an example for us in this? Absolutely he did. In the first gospel written, which is Mark, we see this. Mark, take your Bible, flip over to Mark for a second. We'll go there. Flip back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, you see the different stories. You go down the list. John the Baptist is preparing the way. In verse 9, the baptism of Jesus. Then the temptation of Jesus at verse 12 to 15. Jesus calls his first disciples, 16 down to verse 20. He goes into a synagogue in Capernaum in verse 22, and he heals a man. He's teaching first, by the way. Teaching in the synagogue, and the people are absolutely amazed at his teaching, for he speaks with authority, not like the scribes. A man with a uh, demon in him comes in, and Jesus cleanses the demon out of the guy, and he carries on. In verse number 29, he leaves the synagogue. He enters the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, and he heals Simon's mother-in-law. And that night, as the sun goes down, everybody's heard. Jesus is in town, and he's healing people, and they come flooding to the door, and they pile up around the door of the house, and the Bible says that Jesus goes out and he heals them all. You know, if you had a day like that in ministry, I've done some long days of ministry, you're exhausted. You know what the Bible says? He gets up early in the morning when it's still dark, and he goes out to a lonely place by himself, and there he prayed. When everybody else is still sound, see if I can just see him kind of gingerly stepping over the bodies, you know, out the front of the house and over the disciples sleeping in the house. And by himself, while everybody's still asleep, he prioritized prayer above everything else. The disciples come find him. Jesus, come on. The crowds have all gathered. They're all back at the house. They're all waiting. We've got them all lined up. We've got them categorized by, you know, different illnesses. All you got to do is walk down and you can heal them all. What's he say? The Bible says in Mark 1, 37 and 38, they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And he set his preaching spiritual ministry in priority over those practical ministries. He taught before he cleansed the, the or cast out the demon in the, in the synagogue. And then he heals her. Then he cleanses more. But when it's early in the morning, he prays. Then he goes to preach more. His priority is a spiritual ministry. Christ came. And his highest priority was prayer. Before engaging in long days of tiring ministry, he prayed. Before he entered into his suffering and death, he prayed. It was his practice. And I believe you could say it was his delight to depart to lonely places and there to enter into solitary prayer with his father. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if he needed and desired a long for communion in prayer, how much more do we? And, you know, and it's so easy to beat people up over prayer because no matter how much we pray, we could always pray more, right? 
But he needed it, and he desired it, he longed for it, and he took time for it. Christ came and prioritized spiritual ministry over practical ministry. Christ also, by the way, he healed the sick, and he fed the hungry, and he cleansed the lepers. He was in the boat with the disciples. He walked the road with the disciples. You remember the story when Jesus is in the boat with Peter? And he says, put your nets over for a catch. And Peter says, oh, come on. I've fished all night. We've caught nothing. It's the middle of the day. The sun's up. The fish are gone deep. No point. Nevertheless, he says, at your word, at your one word, I'll put down one net. (laughs) And he throws the net over. And you know what happened, right? The fish just fill the net immediately. You know when Peter starts pulling the net in? I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus leaned over the side, alongside of Peter, and shoulder to shoulder, they both reached down the water and started to pull up on that net. Why? What's the point? The point is he was involved in practical ministry. He prioritized his ministry, absolutely. Prayer first, preaching second. But he was also involved in practical ministry. Now from verse 2 and verse 4 of Acts chapter 6, we could easily assume that what is meant is only the elders prioritize prayer and serving the word. Everybody else is to get busy with serving. Not argue, it's a little bit different. I think it's like this. The entire church, from elders to brand new disciples, all must prioritize spiritual ministry to themselves and other individuals. Uh, Robert Murray McShane, some of you may know that name, great preacher from Scotland, died at 29 years of age, literally worked himself to death. He said, my congregation's greatest need is my godliness, my holiness. So his first priority was to work on the preacher to ensure he had a right standing with God. So for us as a church, doesn't matter if you're a brand new disciple or the oldest believer in the room. Our priority is to minister spiritually to ourselves, to all be engaged in private and corporate prayer, to all be in the word, reading, memorizing, and meditating, to all feed ourselves on the word of God. But the leadership of a church have an added priority of spiritual ministry to the entire church. So think of it like this. Your sphere of influence as a member in the church is yourself, and the few around you that you're close to. You have a sphere of influence. One of you here has been sending out Bible texts in in text message. Good on you, because you're doing one little thing to put the Word of God in people's hands. I watch others. I had a thrill the other day. Um, We're walking in the back of the church after service, and I saw a huddle of people over there praying with one person, and a huddle of people in the middle there praying with somebody else. And it's like, this is great. This is the church ministering to itself, little groups. So individual members have a responsibility to minister to themselves and to those around them. The eldership, the leadership of a church have an added priority that they set the ministry to the entire church. That's their responsibility, right? So the eldership's first priority is prayer. The eldership's second priority is preaching, ministering, and serving God's word. And our third priority is practical ministry. Don't ever, don't ever look at those verses and say, well, the eldership does all the spiritual work and the diaconate does all the practical work, and that's the way it's supposed to be. No, that's not quite right. What it is is for an eldership and a pastor, their priority is spiritual ministry. Not, not to the exclusion of practical ministry. We are, as elders, to get our hands dirty, to work alongside, to walk with. Uh, My friend Ross Honick is a shepherd in in New Zealand. He had a whole flock of sheep. He left shepherding ministry to become a pastor. (laughs) Go figure. And he had some great stories about shepherding sheep. He said, you could always tell a shepherd, they smell like sheep. And brothers and sisters, not that you guys smell. I I didn't mean that in any way, shape, or form. You all smell wonderful. (laughs) But the idea was that he knew his sheep. In Psalm 23, when you read about the shepherd, the shepherd knew his sheep. He spent time with them. 
He got to know them. He worked alongside of them in practical ministries. Okay, moving on. Our primary work is prayer and preaching, but it's not our only work. Elders are to set an example for the church to follow in speech, in conduct, in faith, in love, and purity. We're to set an example. So it isn't a case of do what I say, not what I do. It's do what I do, then listen to what I say. Because if my doing and my saying don't line up, there's a problem. Right? We all struggle. Don't get me wrong. We always, every preacher, pastor, preaches above where he is. He must. But we're all to be striving to get there. And our doing and our speaking have got to be in, in, in sync with each other. We're to follow, again, Christ's example. In the midst of the upper room, he rose from the table. He removed his outer garments. He wrapped himself in a towel, and he washed their feet. And then he resumed his speaking ministry to them. Prioritizing speaking ministry or spiritual ministry loves the Lord and loves the church. Prioritizing spiritual ministry pleases the Lord. Because his desire is for all to come to faith in Christ and for every sheep to grow up into the image of Christ. Take your Bibles, flip over one more time. Sorry. Colossians chapter 1. Here it is. Colossians 1, verse and 28 and 29. Paul is writing and he says, I'll let you find it, sorry. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, the Bible says, Him, that's Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Prioritizing spiritual ministry pleases the Lord because its goal is to present every person mature and complete in Christ. It's not much point if I bring a sheep on that great day of judgment and say, look, Lord, I've got a sheep. He's well cared for. He's well dressed. He's all groomed nicely. And Jesus looks at him and says, depart from me. I don't know him. Far more important that we bring the sheep that know the Lord. Yes, we are to do those practical. That's what this is all about, is doing those practical ministries. But the, 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 sorry, the apostles make it very clear. There is a priority. Spiritual ministry takes priority over practical ministry. And the last thing I want to look at this morning is this. Godliness for ministry. Notice, let's go back to Acts chapter 6 again. And notice, that's Luke. In Acts chapter 6, look what he says in verse 3 and verse 5. He says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Then he repeats, or he says in verse 4, We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. A loving church recognizes godliness for ministry. The widows complain. The elders recognize and prioritize the needs. Then they give a very clear standard to the church for how to select and appoint those who will serve in ministry. Notice, none of those qualifications have to do with natural physical ability, but rather they all have to do with integrity and godliness. In First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul will make repeated reference to the qualifications of elders and deacons, and one theme that weaves its way through those three books of First and Second Timothy and Titus is this, godliness for ministry. The first priority is godliness. The twelve didn't look at the church and say, look around you and see what natural physical qualities do you or they have? What training do they have? Remember, what they're talking about here, that's a practical ministry. It's a physical ministry. Taking money, taking food, and distributing it to all those widows who are in need. Their guidelines for selection 
under the Spirit of God's inspiration, give us the same guidelines for how we select ministers and appoint them to roles and tasks in the church. And it's godliness that is the priority there. Stephen, as kind of the shining star among the seven, is most known and remembered for what? Rapid service delivery of food hampers? No, he's not remembered for that at all. In fact, what he's remembered for, he has the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. And Acts has a whole lot of sermons recorded. His is the longest. That's striking. He's known and remembered, of course, as the very first martyr, the first one who dies for his faith. It's godliness in this man. That's what guided them in selecting him. Now, it's, I'm going to add to this, even though it's not specifically stated in this. In the text here, it's stated in First and Second Timothy and Titus. It's godliness for eldership. Now, tragically, from the 50s to the 80s, in North America, there's some churches over there that, that, that shifted in how they selected men for eldership. And eldership was selected from successful businessmen. They know how to handle money. The churches are making money and growing in wealth. So we'll put successful businessmen into position as elders. Nowhere in Scripture is that the case. Sorry, it's not. The simple reality is elders are to be recognized by the church for being godly men, whether they're CEOs or carpenters. It doesn't make any difference. Their profession has no bearing whatsoever. Uncle Jack. The guy, the, the man that taught me how to study and mentored me for years, I will argue he's probably the godliest man I've ever met. No. He's a logger. He's missing fingers from a logging accident. He had scars all over him from logging mishaps. His last years were spent driving around in a five-ton trunk, delivering and picking up uh, used clothing for the Union Gospel Mission, like an outreach mission to the uh, the poor and the needy and the alcoholics and drug addicts in Vancouver. Godly man. In many ways, he served and fulfilled all the roles and responsibilities of an elder. He was a faithful prayer warrior and he preached. He's still preaching at 80 plus years of age. Godly man. The other one that I can think of, and, and Heath knows both these, Grandpa Biggs. He's a business executive for one of the top lumber manufacturing mills in uh, Vancouver area. He was an elder for a year. He was a godly, godly man, and he was a business executive. What I'm trying to say is the background is irrelevant. It's godliness of character. And, and the, the 12 are giving those standards, those qualifications to the church to teach them to look for the right things in the ones they choose for ministry. Notice the five things listed there. There's four mentioned by the twelve, and one is added by Luke as he describes Stephen. Number one, the servant is to be from among you. Number one. Secondly, the servant is to be of a good reputation. Thirdly, the servant is to be full of the Spirit. Fourthly, he is to be full of wisdom or a wise man. And fifthly, Luke adds, full of faith. Now, I hardly need to expound those to you. You understand all of those. But I do want to take one or two anyway. He is to be from among you, from which we draw the lesson very simply. He is to be a believer. Well, that's an obvious thing you'd say. You'd think. Sadly, it happens that unbelievers get involved in ministries in the church. I have heard, no exaggeration, of pastors preaching sermons and getting saved under their own gospel ministry. It happens. Praise God they got saved. What a tragedy when unbelievers get involved in the ministry of the church and by unwise appointment of a leadership, somebody gets involved in the ministry of a church and is deceived for the rest of his life into thinking he's saved because he's a deacon or he's saved because he's here, there, or everywhere in the church. They're to be from among you. We will inherit a host of problems by bringing unbelievers into the ministry of the church. doesn't matter what level. It's almost always because of some natural ability that they possess. But something else I, want, I think just as I was meditating on that phrase, from among you, he was with the sheep. 
He was found with the sheep. Meaning what? Meaning he was faithful in his gathering with God's people. The minister who is using of God is a godly man who gathers with God's people. He's faithful with the sheep. Notice, secondly, he is to be of a good reputation. His character and his lifestyle, his life is one that lives and displays what he believes in practical, everyday living. He couldn't hang around with Jack. I so wish I could get Jack to come here and preach, but it's, I don't know, well, possible maybe, but not likely. When Jack walked in the room, there was no doubt that there was a godly man there. There was just something about him. You almost couldn't put your finger on it until you knew Jack for a little while and you realized it's a godly character. Not to sing the praises of men, but you know what? Everybody knew Uncle Jack. Everybody knew there's a godly man that loves the Lord. His whole life was lived to study the Word of God, to preach and teach and share the Word of God, to pray with men and women. And he saw Hundreds saved over his lifetime as he shared the gospel with them in the streets, drug addicts, alcoholics, and so on. His life lived and displayed everything he believed. This man was of a good reputation. The one where to pick was one against whom charges could not be brought. He not only believes that honesty honors and pleases the Lord, he practically is honest in all his dealings. This one not only believes that living by faith in God pleases the Lord, he actually lives by faith in God. His life of godliness is reflected in his actions. Those inside and outside the church can see it and see his life and glorify God for it. Nobody can bring a charge against this one. It's godliness. He's to be full of the Spirit. He's clearly the Lord Jesus' disciple. Having believed in Christ, he's filled with the Spirit. His life bears the fruit and the evidence of the Spirit's control and authority in his life. He responds to the Spirit's provocation with love and joy and peace and patience, etc. He bears the fruit of the Spirit and exercises his spiritual gift. They looked at Stephen and they saw a man there. He was with the sheep. He had a good reputation inside and out. He was full of the Spirit. He was full of wisdom. He had an experience of life. He knew what it was to live life as a godly man. And they honored him by putting into position. Does that mean that the standard's so high nobody can achieve it? You're right. It's a high standard. And the answer we give to that, well, I'm, I'm trying, but I don't think I can ever get there. We strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to grow in those things, to live a godly life, to keep short accounts with God. And when things go wrong, we confess and we seek forgiveness and we move on. It's a man who is striving for those things with all his heart and mind and soul, who's often broken before the Lord for the failures in his own life. Those are the guys we're looking for. I say guys and girls in appropriate ministries. Choosing and appointing godly servants to their roles loves the church by setting Christ-like examples for the church to follow. Choosing and appointing godly servants to their roles pleases the Lord because it obeys His Word. It honors Him as the example to follow. So brothers and sisters, strive for godliness. Strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to love as Christ loved, to serve as Christ served, and to be pleasing to the Lord in all things. You know what Paul said? I got one ambition. We all have ambitions and goals in life, right? Paul had one. It's amazing for an apostle who is in jail. I have one ambition, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. And that's one ambition you can fulfill whether you're a prisoner of the Lord, whether you're a paraplegic or an Olympic runner. It doesn't make any difference. You can be pleasing to the Lord as a banker or a lawyer or a carpenter or a plumber or engineer, retired or busy with work, a mom at home, a grandma at home, a grandpa out in the golf course, whatever it is, you can be pleasing. You can strive to please the Lord. Paul had his, that as his one ambition. Remember this. We want to be a church that pleases the Lord. 
We want to remember that rejoicing through suffering for Christ pleases him. Ceaselessly evangelizing, taking every opportunity that we have when it comes across to share a word for Christ pleases the Lord. Loving Christ and his church pleases the Lord. Look around you, brothers and sisters. There are needs in this church that need to be met. I'll say it again. It's not a show to come watch. It's a body to become and be a part of, to be actively involved in. Recognizing the spiritual priorities pleases the Lord. It honors Christ's example and pleases Him. Recognizing that godliness is a requirement for ministry pleases the Lord. So what do we do with all this? What do you take away with you? Number one, look to Christ. In all these things, He is the ultimate and only true example. I know I've mentioned it three or four times over the last two weeks. I've got to mention it again. That scene where he takes his outer robe off and wraps himself in a towel. Brother and sister, you are an example of what it means to lead and to serve. That's it. He was willing to get down on his knees with a bowl of water and wash his disciples' feet. That's, that's servant leadership. Look to Christ as the example of the servant of the Lord who loved his own even to the end, coming to serve and not be served. Strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to be godly, to be that godly person they're describing there. Strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to have a good reputation, to be among the sheep, to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom, to be full of faith as it describes Stephen. Strive in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way you'll do it. To be the godly one they're describing. Devote yourself to spiritual ministry. First to yourself. You might be wondering, why first to ourselves? Isn't it more important in godly and giving to minister other people than myself? Well, the answer is simply this. You can't lead others where you're not going. You can't lead others where you have not been. So the desire in all of our hearts must be to minister to our own hearts the Word of God, minister to our families, minister to our friends, and ones close to us, that circle of influence that we all have around us in this church. Minister to them and for the eldership to have a priority of ministering to the church in prayer and the Word. Look around you, number four, to see where and how you can practically minister in this church and strive to meet those needs as God gives you the opportunity. We want to please the Lord, don't we? Yeah. All right. Let's pray, and then we'll be done for the morning.